We pick up on our continued study of the epistle of James. And we are in James chapter 4. We're going to begin our reading at James 4 verse 13 and read through chapter 5 verse 8. But it is verse 13 to the end of chapter 4 that is our text, but especially I will reread verse 15. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and ye shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. In our text, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4, it is, of course, verse 15 that is the most important verse, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. May God add his blessing upon his word. one can immediately notice that there is no connection really between this section of James, that is the rest of James 4, and what took place previously, uh, presently before it. James is simply turning to another weakness in the congregations to which he is addressing his general theme, and that general theme is True living faith over against dead faith. Or to use another term, he's been stressing in this whole epistle, genuine faith versus counterfeit faith. And it seems like James is taking an example directly from the congregations. We know from James chapter 2 verse 1, and we know from James chapter 5 that there were those who were rich in the church, but there were also those who were poor. And the rich 
were not the benefactors that they should have been. That's clear, especially from James chapter 5, where the uh, owner of the field has reaped well from the fields, but he doesn't pay the laborers what he ought to. It appears that there were not only farmers, but there were also Jewish merchants in the church. And that is the illustration that James is latching onto in verse 13. So my theme is here, living in submission to God's will. Living in submission to God's will. Notice with me, our plans and frailty. Second of all, then, the calling to put our dependence, total dependence, in God. And thirdly, then several warnings in verse 16 and verse 17. James begins and he says, go to now. What does that mean? He is saying, stop a moment. Stop a moment in your busy lives and consider what I have to say. Necessary for those merchants that he's going to address. Necessary for that congregation. Necessary for you and for me. Stop now in your busy lives and consider what the Lord has to say. And so there is a scene pictured for us in verse 13. A wealthy Jewish merchant. Perhaps he's talking to his family, or perhaps he's talking to a fellow businessman. And with eyes glowing, he and his fellow merchants are going to go on a trip. Perhaps they're going to leave tomorrow. And as they're planning their trip, we're going to go to this city. And we'll stay there for a year, and we will buy, and we will sell, and we will make increase. And then we'll go to this city, and we will make increase. And then we'll go to this city, and we will make increase. So perhaps after two, three, four years, they will come back with all kinds of abundance. Profitable trip, all planned out, and their wealth increased. Does that sound familiar at all to you, to me? Perhaps some of you have planned to enter into a partnership with a friend or fellow members working for you. So you borrow money. You enlarge your business, you're hoping to increase your profits, to expand your sales, and to accumulate. Accumulate more things so that either you can grow in your business or so that you can enjoy good things. Or husbands and wives planning their future. How much they're going to save each month. So that finally when they're ready to retire, they have their pension plans, they have their social security, and hopefully enough saved up to enjoy easy life, retire at a certain age, and maybe even enjoy winters down there in sunny Florida. Plans made. Or the boys and girls out of school now, planning vacation. Maybe some of you leaving tomorrow. You might travel a ways and stop in a city and enjoy a night in a hotel and then travel further to go to a national park or perhaps to park yourself down by the ocean side and then come home maybe after a week or maybe two weeks again to the routine of ordinary life. Wonderful plans that you and I make for tomorrow and the day afterwards. 
There's only one trouble with our plans, aren't there? Isn't there? We make them like the Jewish merchants. We think that we can predict what's going to take place in the next couple weeks or in the future with certainty and we are able to control what's going to happen. Yeah, we know it's not true. We're reminded of that every day, aren't we? That we are not our own bosses. That we are not in control of all of our circumstances. But often we live as if it was true. And James here, in verse 14, reminds us of the transitory nature of our lives. We read, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. I cannot predict what's going to happen, neither can you, tomorrow or the next day. Any one of us could be struck with a stroke or a heart attack. We might be involved in an accident. Or suddenly our economy might collapse with prices either going way down or prices going way up. The business trip that we had planned has to be canceled because you can't get the loan that you need or because the business has failed. Or that plan for those retirement years. Suddenly one or the other of the spouses come down with health issues that are crippling. Perhaps requiring long hospitalizations or even institutional care. And I've known those members. Just going to work one more year and then we'll retire and didn't make that extra year. Or how many of us haven't had the occasion of planning a family vacation? We took our young children up to a lake in northern Michigan. They caught all their small little fish and they expected dad to clean them with some dull knife. Big potluck at night. And all of a sudden that night, I came down with the flu, and every one of the family came down with the flu, and we went home sick, and we tossed those cleaned fish away. Our idea, our plans of that grand vacation there on the lake and fishing and sunning completely changed. Or any family vacations now that Elva and I make, we right away take out insurance because I don't know whether someone in the family might become ill or someone in the congregation ill or even die. Transitory plans. Oh, the frailty of our lives. James uses the, the figure of a morning mist on a spring day. If I get out to the cottage and I have to mow the lawn, I have to wait for a little while for the dew to be evaporated by the sun in order to mow that grass. So that dew that is visible to our eyes as the sun arises disappears. The heat burns it away. And that's the way our lives are, aren't they? We're here one moment and then suddenly we're gone. I don't know the moment I'm going to die, and you, none of you know the moment you will die. You don't have to be old to die, do you? You and I probably both can think of families whose little children were involved in a car accident and killed suddenly. Or little children that might have died in the womb or shortly afterwards. We are here just for a fleeting time. That's the essence of verse 14. And that is the whole of Scripture too, isn't it? 
Psalm 27, verse 1, Solomon, or Proverbs 27, verse 1, Solomon says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring. Or again, Moses writes in Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6, Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. As you drive through the countryside, look at some of those hayfields. Starting to get a a little bit green in April. And at the end of May, the grass is already cut off and all baled up in big round bales. Two months. Psalm 103, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Psalm 103, verse 14 and following, as for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. It is Peter who quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. We read there in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The transitoriness of humans, the abiding of our Lord and our God and his word and his plans. So when scripture emphasizes so strongly in so many places of the transitoriness of life, how foolish it is to live as if we're going to live somehow forever and ever and that we are in control of our lives and what will happen in our lives. That is sin, and it is foolishness. Our plans and our our frailty, every one of us, every one of us, dressed tonight, just as the saints in the churches of that James is writing to. Brings me to my second point then, our calling to put our trust and our confidence not in ourselves, but in God. Not in ourselves, but in God. If the Lord wills. You know that wealthy merchantman that I talked about earlier who made his plans that we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to make a big increase. That was evidence of a dead faith or a counterfeit faith. I'm in control of my life and this is what I'm all going to do. And over against that comes this confession of faith in verse 15. It's a living faith. It's a genuine faith. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It is a confession whereby a person puts his trust and confidence in God. If the Lord wills. Notice with me immediately that we have there a conditional statement. That is, it is an if clause. If the Lord wills. Now that is not to doubt that the Lord does not will everything that happens to us. 
The Lord wills everything that happens to us. There are some Christians who say God does not will for us to suffer or have pain. God doesn't want that. In their theology, that's the devil. What's wrong with that theology? Analyze in a moment. Are you in the Lord's loving hands every moment? Or are you at times in the devil's hand with God just standing by the sidelines feeling bad for you but unable to do anything? Are you in the Lord's loving hands whom he's shaping you and preparing you Or are you in the devil's hands as he squishes you like you would squish a bug in your hand? And that's supposed to be comforting. The Lord doesn't want you to suffer. That's from the devil. That's devilish theology. Heresy. We are in the Lord's hand. So it does not mean that God does not will everything if the Lord wills. Rather, the uncertainty is of what the Lord wills. I don't know what God has in mind for my life. Not even for tomorrow. The certainty Notice our text, if the Lord wills, it is not teaching here that it's sin to plan for tomorrow or for the future. It's not a sin. We are to be wise stewards, faithful stewards, and that means that we plan for tomorrow. Yes, Many of our plans for the future do arise out of our affluence, don't they? I'm going to continue in this business. I'm going to go on this vacation. And the less one has, the more they have to live in the present. I think of the dear saints in the Philippines. They are hoping that tomorrow they'll be able to sell enough stuff on the street in order to have rice for their supper. Very, very present needs. We are to plan for the future. Didn't God come to Hezekiah and say, get your house in order for you are going to die? So each one of us has to plan for the future. I need to plan for my wife. If I die, is she in a place where she can live comfortably not having to mow the grass or plow the snow. Those are all considerations you do take, and rightly so for the future. But notice, I'm not in control. If the Lord wills. What is that will of God? It is the same as his eternal counsel, his eternal plan that he has determined before the foundations of the world. God has determined everything. And I want to speak about that will of the Lord. If the Lord wills several characteristics, five of them. Number one, God's will is unchangeable. It is God's determination that cannot be altered even by God himself. God has decreed it. And as Christ Jesus now sits in heaven and unfolds or opens up that book with the seals thereof, he is carrying out the Lord's decrees or plans for all of history. It's unchangeable. Unchangeable by what man does Unchangeable by any circumstances in our life. Everything is determined, so it's unchangeable. Number two, that will of God is not a dead plan or what we would call a blueprint. It's just simply there. and No, it's a living will. That is, God in his mind has that will and he is carrying, he is executing that will day from day Whatever God wills, he does, and nothing. 
Nothing and no one can resist his will. So it is unchangeable. It is a living will. Thirdly, it is all comprehensive. Everything that takes place in heaven, everything that takes place here on the earth, and everything that takes place in hell is according to his will. The very moment of our birth as well as the very moment of our death are determined. Every second, every thought, Every act, every step is determined by God so that nothing comes by chance, but our whole lives are in God's hands. Unchangeable, a living will, all comprehensive, and forth, God's will is sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord. Center and focal point of God's will is his purpose. That's fifthly, a purpose. And what is the purpose of God's will? That he will be glorified in Christ Jesus. That he will build and gather his church, that bride that he is giving to his son. And that the wicked will be destroyed. Everything is related to Christ Jesus and is subservient to God's glory. And that's why, boys and girls, in school you have learned a definition for history, haven't you? You look at that word history and you see two different words. His story. His story. God's story, God working all things, God carrying out all things, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is saving, saving his church whom he loves. Everything that happens to God's people is according to his will for their good. Oh, it doesn't seem that way, does it? When all of a sudden the, the first one gets down with the flu, our son is up from, from uh, where he lives down there, down south. He's up in Michigan right now. One week of vacation there at the conference grounds, one week at our cottage. And sure enough, the youngest one just came down with flu. Hmm, for youngest one with flu, how long does it take staying in a camper or in a little cottage? Everything. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. A hospitalization of a dear father. Health needs of a spouse. A death of a child. Do I understand it? Can my little mind figure out God's plan and what it is exactly? Not at all. But as the old saying goes, Father knows best. Our Father in heaven knows best. And then we take that text of Romans 8 and we say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I believe it. I don't understand it, but I believe it. The child of God, the believer, is the one who has that true and living faith that binds him to Christ Jesus. It makes this text of James a crucial qualification of all of his plans. A living, true faith makes this qualification for all of their plans. If the Lord wills, I will do this 
or that. That means by faith we are appropriating that truth concerning God's will. It covers everything. It is all those characteristics that I mentioned. That's the truth taught by all of Scripture. By faith, we take hold of that truth that we belong to Christ Jesus and that Christ is before all things and by him all things exist. By faith, we know that Christ is our head, the head of his body, the church. And confessing this great truth as it affects the whole of our lives Yes, the believer is taught by Jesus in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done joyfully and thankfully submitting to that will. We know our own sinfulness. We know our own weakness and frailty. We know our own dependence upon our God. And so we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. That's our lives whether it be taken in our prime or as a little child or whether taken as an old saint. Every day, every moment, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, thou wilt teach me thy will, and then thou wilt receive me to glory. Always we are in danger of forgetting that, aren't we? Danger of forgetting it. We think that we are in control. That we can guide what's going to take place this week and next week and at the end of summer. In peacetime and in prosperity, when life is easy, it's to forget all about God up there. In afflictions in disappointments, in great sorrows. We are tempted, we are tempted to become angry, to rebel against God's will, or to question even God's goodness. How many have not left the church when a tragedy struck, and they're angry, and they said, if God does that, who needs God? That is a dead, that was a counterfeit faith. Flourishing for a little while in the eyes of others, but showing it was not a true faith. Both of those, if we forget about God in our times of prosperity, or if we become angry with God in adversity, we are in we are disobeying the injunction of our text. If God wills, we will do this or we will do that. And even if we grudgingly submit to God's will in times of trouble and sickness, and we say, well, let's try to make the best of it, then we're failing to obey God's word here then we are not living out of a lively faith. How must we submit to God's will? How humbly, joyfully, thankfully. Oh, be careful how you use this little phrase in verse 15, if the Lord wills. It's so easy for us to carry out our plans thinking that then the Lord will give us exactly what we want or strive for. 
It's possible to use that phrase in our prayers or to put it in our bulletins as we look at the schedule ahead for the week or for the weeks ahead without thinking or knowing what we're really saying. If the Lord wills. A young man or a young lady starts dating someone from outside the church with no faith and wants to get married and says, if God wills, that's not God's will. You take a job on Sunday that includes working on Sunday so you can't be in church. If God wills, that's not God's will. If we're so busy with work or with pleasure that we don't have any time for our children, and we say, if the Lord wills, that's not the Lord's will. If we sock our money away for that future day when we're going to retire and we neglect the church budget, if God wills, that's not the Lord's will. You see, we need to live now each day out of that living faith conscious that God is directing the whole course of our life what he wants us to live and do and say and act happy and content to submit what the Lord gives us in life oh beloved that's not easy it's not easy when a loved one is in the hospital It's not easy when a little baby is ripped away from you in early death. It's not easy when our plans suddenly are turned all around. If the Lord wills, happy, content to submit. That brings me to my third point. And that's verses 16 and 17 where there are warnings. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All rejoicing is evil. So one warning. Second one. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. Two warnings. Number one, the arrogancy, the arrogancy of denying God's will. That's verse 16, boasting. Verse 17, the sin of disobeying God's will. Let's begin with the first one, boasting in our arrogance. The first wrong response to God's will is presumptuously ignoring it. Living as though God and his will don't exist in our lives. And those who acknowledge that God exists and has a will, nevertheless arrogantly rejecting it, setting it aside. What we call it is practical atheism. Atheism is saying there is no God. Practical atheism is saying, I know there's a God, but it doesn't affect my life. I'm going to live how I want to, what I think is best. They are self-theists, refusing to submit to the uncertainties of life, refusing to submit to God, to set themselves up as their own gods, their own wills. I will do what I please. I will do whatever I think is necessary. It is to live as if God is not in control of everything. Our life is there to boast then. To be loudmouth. That's what it means to boast in our passage. To be loudmouth. To utter one's own accomplishments. Not dependent on God, but self reliance. 
I have the power to bring to pass the things that I want. It's the arrogance that you hear out there in the world at graduation speeches. It's up to you, young people. You can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You can be and you will be only what God has already decreed. And that's why it is always young people as you graduate seeking what God wills with your life. Not, first of all, what I want. What does God want? Not dependent upon God, but self-reliance. And then sad or angry or disappointed or even rebellious when our plans are canceled by God's providence. Boasting. Worse, we rejoice in our boasting. I did this and I did that. Listen a moment to Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12 of the rich fool. I will say to my soul, soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat and drink and be merry. He boasted. And God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. O oh, beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, what a warning. Do not boast in arrogancy what you're going to do. Acknowledging that God exists, but not taking into account. But there's a second great warning. That is the one who knows the right thing to do but does not do it. What is that right thing? That word right thing means that which is qualitatively good, morally excellent, that which is worthy of honor and is upright. The one who knows what is right, what is morally excellent, but does not do it. In other words, this is a person that affirms God's existence and even affirms the supremacy of God's will, but proceeds to disobey. The abuse that has been taking place in our churches for these many years. They know that God exists and they know what God's will is regarding our sexuality. Or how we treat our children or our wives. That abuse, whether sexual or physical or emotional, they know that God forbids that kind of behavior, and yet they do it. Are you young people on dating? You all know. You all know what God says about sex. It's a good thing in marriage between a husband and a wife to be refrained from in dating. You know it. Do you act accordingly? For those of us who are married, the adultery that takes place at times in the mind or in actions, we know what God says about it. Do we act on that? Or do we let those thoughts linger in our mind and finally carry over to our actions? Because we all have God's moral law before us. That is his will setting out his will, his commanded will for our lives. Those who know God's will are responsible to obey it. And so we, sin, we talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. 
Sins of commission are sins committed willingly and deliberately, knowing that they're wrong. (coughs) But there are especially, and that's what this text is about, sins of omission. We know what God commands of us, and we fail to do what we are called to do. And beloved, that is especially true about the antithetical life that we are called to live in this world. An antithetical calling to reject sin and choose to do the right. We are never neutrally, morally neutral. As we stand between the good and the bad, we're never neutral. Either we do the good or we do the bad. What warnings. When we do good, God is glorified because it's God working in us. When we do what is good, and the Greek word there is not now the word there for morally correct, But the word that is used there is the Greek word for beautiful. By God's grace, we do that which is beautiful in God's sight. As God said to Satan up in heaven, Have you seen my righteous servant Job? God took pride in what Job was living because it's really God's work in Job's heart that enabled him to live a righteous life. Beautiful lives, not just outward attractiveness, but inward soundness. A heart that beats for God and for his glory and for Christ. The inward desire to be pleasing to the Lord. How can you and I, sinful creatures, do that which is good, that is, which is beautiful in God's eyes? And here's the answer. Only by living every moment in total dependence on God in Christ Jesus. As sinful creatures, We can live beautiful lives from moment to moment, from year to year, whether as children or adolescents or as those who are older, living every moment in total dependence upon God in Christ Jesus. Living in dependence upon Christ, Spirit dwelling within us, so that we are not hurting the Spirit, sinning against the Spirit, but listening to the Spirit, learning God's will from His Word and then applying it to our lives, leaning upon our God in Christ Jesus in prayer. Guide my feet, O Lord. Keep me from the evil one. May thy word be the lamp to my feet and a light upon my path. What a responsibility. What a responsibility lies upon you and me then who have been enlightened by God's word. Enlightened by God's word in our Christian homes. Enlightened by God's word in our Christian schools. Enlightened by God's word in the church of Jesus Christ where you hear the word of God twice every Sabbath day. And you study it in societies. We have no excuses like the little pagan in Africa might have. They never heard. We know God's commanded will for us, his children. Responsibility. Doing good, knowing what is right, and doing it. Failure to take time to teach our children diligently? No! Not giving your offerings for the budget or for the school? No! 
visiting and carrying out, caring for the poor and the sick. Yes. Speaking out when God's name is blasphemed. Yes. All in all, a loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is God's commanded will. If the Lord wills, we will do this and that. That is God's good purpose for which he has saved you and me. Doing God's will as an act of worship. May God be glorified in us. So you see this little hour and a half that we had this morning and an hour and a half this evening, that's not the total of our worship at all, is it? But our whole lives. Take me, Lord. Take me and use me in thy service. Amen. We thank thee, Father, that our lives are controlled by thy good and sovereign and powerful will. And that thou wilt work all things together for good, even when we don't understand why. We thank thee for thy commanded will and that we have been enlightened in that will. O oh Lord, work mightily in us by thy spirit daily. Thy word is our guide. Prayers to thee requesting thy grace. Responsible. Doing good. Being beautiful in thy sight. Each day. Not just on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday. Whether it be in the home. In the office or the field or the factory. On the school ground. Playing with brothers and sisters. May we, Father, be beautiful in thy sight. Amen.